Anita Alberti is an HBS professor and an expert in the entertainment industry. She's also the author of a new book called Blockbusters, Hit-Making, Risk-Taking, and the Big Business of Entertainment. She's here today to talk about the, the high-risk strategy that some entertainment folks are taking by putting many of their eggs in one basket and what the implications of that are. Anita, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. So uh, just a couple of weeks ago, um, Grand Theft Auto V was introduced, and in the first three days, it sold a billion dollars, uh, made a billion dollars in sales. Uh, the company that produced it spent about $250 million making it. Does that fit the definition of a blockbuster? It's the perfect example of a blockbuster strategy, in fact. It's the perfect example of a company that is willing to go all in uh, on its products. And that uh, this is an extreme example of a company that says we're going to spend all our resources on just one product. Uh, this is an, essentially our portfolio. What drives you to, to write a book like Blockbusters? So the main goal was actually to, to get invited to as many parties and movie premieres <laughs> as possible. You're hanging out with some cool people. Yes, and that was the main goal. In fact, that's why I joined the Harvard Business School. I thought that would give me the best shot. Um, no, so in all fairness, it uh, um, occurred to me that there are major business challenges for these companies that uh, companies in these sectors that academics really didn't understand. We didn't we didn't have good answers as to what was the best strategy for a film studio or for a record label or for the Red Sox. And uh, so I decided to, to devote my, my research to, to these areas uh, because it was great fun, but also because there were these, these big questions that, that need to be resolved. Uh, there's really interesting data for academics to analyze. The movie industry produces its sales data in the public domain every, uh, every single week. So there's really interesting data to work with, and, uh, uh, and it's been great fun. Can you predict what the successful characteristics of a blockbuster are going to be? Uh, yes, and in fact, it's all in the book. I can't give it away in this podcast. We really are hoping that people are buying the book so that they can uh, make their own billion-dollar movie. Of course, right. Um, well, no, and, and just kidding. It is extremely difficult uh, to predict what the next blockbuster will be. We know some ingredients. We know that it takes high production value. Uh, it needs to look really good, especially if you have a movie, for instance, that um, has a, has a, that relies heavily on special effects. Um, it tends to have A-list talent, even though that is not always the case, but more often than not, yes, when you're talking about blockbuster films. Um, you tend to see that films that are based on existing properties, whether it's a book or a video game or a previous movie, uh, that those do really well. Um, and obviously, uh, it's not just about the product, it's also about the marketing. So you need to spend heavily to make sure that everyone knows about it. So those, are, those tend to be the ingredients for a blockbuster. But even if you do all those things very well, um, it's not guaranteed that you'll have a blockbuster. If it really were that simple, if it really were, uh, were all about um, throwing lots of money after, uh, after ideas, then anyone could be a studio head, and I don't think that's the case. Uh, talk about some of the people in the book that you cite as examples of people that have had, you know, the, uh, the, the courage, I guess, to pursue the blockbuster approach. Yeah, one central figure in the book is Alan Horn, who's the current, uh, currently the chairman of uh, uh, Disney Pictures. And uh, at the time that uh, I interviewed him for the book, he was the uh, chief operating officer for Warner Brothers. He was really the first to make it a strategy a, a strategy. Uh, in Hollywood to make big bets. Uh, uh, so he wasn't afraid every year to say, uh, out of the 25 films that Warner Brothers releases, we're going to be spending two, $300 million on, on maybe three to five of those films in the hopes that they reach a billion dollars. 
And that takes uh, a lot of guts to do uh, because if it fails, and sometimes it does fail, well, there's a whole lot of negative publicity and obviously there's a, uh, there's a negative impact on the bottom line. But what my research shows and what he, um, uh, he pioneered is that, in fact, that is a strategy that works really well. It seems that it is more risky, um, but making a larger number of smaller bets would, in fact, be a lot riskier because the, the average return you would get for those smaller bets, if you were, to, if you were for instance, to make uh, 20 films that each cost $50 million instead of um, making three or four movies that cost $200 million, uh, the average you, you return you would get for those smaller films is actually a lot lower. So if this is true, then why does anybody make small films anymore? Why, doesn't, why don't all the major organizations just make all blockbusters? Yeah, that's a great question. And in fact, that's a question I ask my students all the time when, when I've just explained to them why the, uh, the blockbuster strategy works so well. Um, and, I, and I think um, uh, the, the answer is that you need, uh, you need a full portfolio to make this work. As a, as a film studio or a publisher or a record label, you can't just make these, these really, really big bets. You need to think about um, having a pipeline of, uh, of products that in a way are test cases for future uh, hits. You need to think about satisfying your partners, your distribution partners or your retailers. They'd love to see regular products coming out of your, your, your studio or your publisher. Uh, so there are a number of reasons why um, a blockbuster strategy isn't just making these big bets, but is also thinking about um, having a portfolio of products that uh, uh, that consists of some smaller products, uh, some smaller bets as well. So it's not about the long tail, because I think one of the things that you're doing in this book is sort of debunking that notion that Chris Anderson put out there a few years ago that that you could do, uh, you could make small bets, uh, and over time, uh, incrementally, you would make more than your investment back. Yeah. So his argument, I think, is that uh, that um, it's in the best interest of publishers. Uh, or, or other content producers to make a larger number of smaller bets. He was saying the future of business is, uh, is less of more, in a way, selling less of more. And, uh, and that, I think, is, is an incorrect notion. Uh, you definitely need the head of the distribution. You definitely need to make these, these big bets. And yeah, you can have success with some smaller products, but to, to solely focus on really small products and uh, expect that demand, consumer demand, will shift to those products uh, now that they're available through online channels. Um, it was a very appealing notion for many people. It gave lots of people hope that the, that the industry might change significantly and, and barriers to entry would be lower. Uh, but if you look at the data, uh, there's very little to suggest that demand is, in fact, moving to the tail. A lot about the blockbuster strategy is counterintuitive in some ways. And you would think that digital and the sort of democratization of creativity online would have leveled the playing field in some respects. But you point to the fact that it's actually fueled the blockbuster strategy in some ways. Yeah, what we, what we see is that, uh, is that the rise of online channels or, or more generally the rise of digital technology and everything that it brings with it um, is actually fueling, fueling uh bigger blockbuster brands, bigger superstars. Um, and yeah, that is counterintuitive, I think, for most people. And, and it certainly wasn't a very popular notion um, uh, in, in the past few years with many uh, observers of these markets coming out and saying the exact opposite, saying, in fact, what you said, that um, the adoption of these new technologies will make it easier for everyone to create products, will make it cheaper for everyone to offer these products, will make it cheaper and easier for consumers to search for whatever it is that they like. So there's a, there was a feeling that 
we are no longer um, at the mercy of these artificial hits of, uh, of the past, that we could now, as consumers, figure out what it is that we would really like, and, and that would not be the same for all of us. Uh, but in fact, it turns out, if you open up the floodgates in a way, if you let everyone consume what it is that they really want, uh, tastes tend to converge on, on similar products. So uh, even though we might not like to admit it, we all want to listen to Britney Spears, and, uh, and we all uh, want to see that, that, uh, that really uh, racy movie that everyone is talking about. So, so what you in fact get, um, because access is increased, is that we are we're consuming um, more of those water cooler uh, type products that, uh, that everyone loves to talk about. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the importance of talent, generally speaking, in the blockbuster approach? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, uh, the role of talent is incredibly important, and that's why I devote uh, a large share of the book to successful talent management strategies and actually looking at this challenge both from the perspective of the entertainment business and the, and the entertainer, whether it's an athlete or a musician or, or an actor, uh, uh, from that perspective as well. Um, and, and what we see is that uh, uh, it's, it's incredibly difficult to think about um, building a sustainable business in the entertainment industry without making investments in A-list talent, uh, whether it's in the sports sector or in the, uh, in, in the more media and entertainment sectors. Uh, we see that most businesses that have sust sustained success um, are willing to make bets on A-list talent. Um, and they also need to think about uh, where they come out in terms of investing in superstars or developing superstars themselves. Um, and none of those are easy challenges. And, and, uh, and in fact, there are different strategies. Different uh, companies have solved those challenges in different ways. Uh, I was surprised to see that the Mickey Mouse Club and Saturday Night Live have something in common. You wouldn't necessarily think they do, but you talk in the book about the talent development model. Can you describe that for us? Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about blockbusters, we tend to think about companies that acquire superstars. But in fact, there are also companies that have been very, uh, very skilled at developing stars, at uh, picking young, young talent, for instance, and actually making sure that they, at some point, are the stars of the, uh, of the future. And I think uh, what good companies, uh, smart managers of, the, of those companies have in common is that they think not just about how can we be as good as possible at developing talent, but also how can we capitalize on those efforts? And I think that's where the Disney Channel and Saturday Night Live are excellent examples. If you, if you look closely at how they structure their contracts and if you look closely at um, what they do with talent once it reaches uh, a, a star status, um, they're just incredibly smart about how they go about their business. Lorne Michaels, I think, is a genius in that, in that respect. And, and the way in which Disney uh, shepherds its talent through different stages um, and, and they grow up from being stars on the Disney Channel to, to being megastars like Justin Timberlake and, uh, and others. It's, it's, it's uh, I think, a fascinating space. So some of it's the talent itself, but some of it really is that they're being shepherded through this process and that Lorne Michaels uh, has control in some respects over their, t over their careers, even after they've left Saturday Night Live. Does that make them kind of indentured servants in some way? No, I mean, I think the, the idea is that if you go through all that effort of developing talent, which is an incredibly difficult uh, thing to do and very resource-intensive and, and also an activity with low odds of success, most people will not become the next Justin Timberlake. So if a company goes through all that effort, um, I think it's only natural that at some point you expect to see a return for that effort. So I think what they're, what they're trying to do is simply to protect 
their, uh, their side of the business and ensure that they can keep doing this. If they would consistently lose money on the development of talent and they would see that talent go elsewhere without getting a reward for it, uh, they wouldn't be in that business for very long. So if you were uh, sitting in a room with um, executives, which you do often, is there something that, in, an insight that you would share with them where they could somehow apply the blockbuster strategy to what they're doing? One of my favorite uh, examples is is just this idea that um, it's fine to take big risks. And and I think that applies to many sectors, that it's, that it's okay and, in fact, probably very beneficial to you uh, to reduce your product line and to go all in on what you think are the most likely winners. Uh, and that is, in fact, what you see that the leading companies are doing across a, a number of different domains. Um, one example is Apple, which for a long time, uh, if you look at other uh, consumer electronics manufacturers, uh, has had a much, much smaller product line and has really been making big bets on, on the products that it thought was, uh, were going to be the most successful. So that is an incredibly uh, useful strategy to have. And then if you think about how films are marketed or how uh, music is marketed, the same idea can also be applied to the consumer electronics space. So um, Apple has long lines in front of its stores. Uh, everyone knows the release dates of its products. There's lots of advertising before the release. Um, they create the same type of atmosphere, the same type of hype uh, around its releases that, that Hollywood studios have been doing for years and years. She's Professor Anita Elberse, author of Blockbusters, Hitmaking, Risk-Taking, and the Big Business of Entertainment. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Business. I'm Brian Kenny, your host. You can find other editions of The Business at hbs.edu news or on iTunes U or SoundCloud.